Hey, lucky listeners. We know you've been holding out for more emergency research updates. So today we have a bonus episode covering eCPR, aortic dissection risk stratification and double defibrillation. This was actually our pilot episode, our very first recording to get things off the ground. We hope you enjoy this. Welcome to the first episode of the Network 5 Emergency Journal Club podcast, an emergency medicine podcast designed to bring exciting emergency research to you. We are embarking on the mission of establishing a regular podcast which will discuss some of the latest research and publications relevant to emergency medicine and its practice within Australia. We know you're all busy and saturated with resources to further your knowledge already, um, so it's our hope that this instead will be an easy way to brush up on the latest evidence whilst vegging out on the couch, taking your dog for a walk, driving into work or frantically cooking up a storm in the kitchen. Furthermore, we would love it to be a collaborative platform from which to share all your thoughts and feedback from previous episodes and from which to voice your thoughts and experiences as emergency practitioners. We are a group of Westmead-based emergency trainees and consultants with the plan of releasing monthly episodes on the third Wednesday of every month. Each month we are aiming to focus on a specific area of interest. So before getting started, let's do a round the table brief introduction so you know who we all are. Hi everyone, my name's Pramod. I'm one of the emergency consultants who works at Liverpool Westmead and Nepean Hospital. Um, I'm also a toxicology fellow and I'll be practicing at Westmead over the next couple of years. Hi everyone, I'm Shreyas. Um, hopefully most people know me by now. It's been a few months since I've joined uh, Westmead. I think all of us in emergency medicine have probably been fairly used to the use of novel platforms for um, education. It's very interesting to be on the other side of the mic on this occasion. Hi, I'm Kit. I hope that most of you also know me. Um, can I share an interesting fact? I was doing my 410 this week, um, buying coursework, because I'm not doing it by research. Um, and I was doing linear regression analyses, and I found out that regression is termed regression because in the 1800s, this bloke, Francis Galton, sorry, Sir Francis Galton, discovered that the heights of fathers and sons, sons were getting shorter than their fathers and called his paper Regression Towards Mediocrity in Hereditary Stature, which I just love. And that's why it's called a regression line. Thank you, Kit. <laughs> I think we might have to have you on regularly to share some more obscure facts. <laughs> I would love to be. Thanks uh, for having me on. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it, that has to be in a regular segment. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> You're roped in officially. <laughs> Kit's Corner for the obscure fact of the week. <laughs> Welcome to my corner. <laughs> Hi everyone, my name is Simoda and it's great to have you um, listening to us and I definitely agree that we should have the Kids Corner. You've really already heard enough from me, um, but my name is Caroline and I also work at Westmead as one of the new registrars this year. 
So first we'd like to welcome one of our ED staff specialists, Dr Pramod Chandru, who will be talking to us about his recent study on out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. Thanks for the introduction, Caroline. Um, so as Caroline said, my name's Pramod. I'm one of the emergency consultants working at Westmead. I also have appointments at Nepean and Liverpool Hospital too. So today I think we're going to talk a little bit about the, um, the prospective sort of observational study that we've done over the last three years in out-of-hospital cardiac arrests at Westmead Hospital. I'll endeavour to give a little bit of context behind sort of why we did this and where we're headed in the future as well. So I guess our story initially begins with the two-chair studies over at Melbourne, um, which was one of the first uh, randomised control trials for the use of ECMO CPR um, in a pre-hospital setting. Um, and the way they went about implementing that protocol was for implementing very strict uh, criteria for activating ECMO CPR in the pre-hospital setting, facilitating pre-hospital cooling of patients, using mechanical CPR to transfer them to emergency departments, and then within the ED, initiating ECMO CPR and then doing definitive management uh, as an under the inpatient teams. So in order to analyse the data that we had in our department, essentially what we've done is a prospective observational study um, of consecutive out-of-hospital cardiac arrest cases um, over a three-year period. And what we've really done is look at the data that we have and analyse some of the demographics that surround some of the cardiac arrests that are presenting to our emergency department. Um, I guess in terms of our results, well, most of our results actually fell well within what we expected to find. Um, we sort of found that patients who presented with shockable rhythms had better survival outcomes, which is something that's reflected in the literature quite commonly. Of interest, perhaps, are two particular points that I'd like to bring up. So the first one is we found that patients who received bystander CPR had significantly higher survival rates than those who did not. And I guess that links into some of the other local work that's going on in our area health service around um, new sort of NHMRC grants around um, public education of CPR and sort of further goes to advocate uh, where our resources should go. You know, there's a clear evidence that educating the public population on effective CPR is key to that chain of survival that we've heard so much about. The second piece of data was really analysing the patients who presented to RED and the feasibility of setting up an ECMO service, uh, depending on the case numbers that we had. And so a few of the definitions that we'll throw around is we're really after refractory out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. And what that really means is patients who have received CPR for 20 minutes or longer and who are specifically under the age of 70 um, and above the age of 18 and have had VF cardiac arrests. Over the three-year period, we, have a we had a total of 17 patients who would have fallen into that criteria and therefore potentially been ECMO candidates. And of those 17 patients, we had no survivors to hospital discharge. So I guess that reflects quite a substantial population subset that might benefit from this very specific intervention. Okay. Um, and if you're looking at the two-cheer study and the cheer studies that were done before, um, did... I guess, did they have data to compare with the way you have data now to compare with what might be coming or how, how did they measure their kind of outcomes? Yeah, so if we look at the number of cases that Tuchir and Chia had, we had very similar cases over a similar period of time. Um, and certainly, you know, those are contemporary cohorts of sort of similar metropolitan emergency departments. And so that was an expected finding. Um, one of the main advantages and sort of the reason there is this push behind ECMO CPR is the improved survival to hospital discharge. So you can see that we had 0% of patients surviving to hospital discharge. And the literature varies depending on the population studied. Um, but certainly the Australian studies reflect that there's you know, upwards of 35 to 40% survival to hospital discharge with good neurological outcomes. 
And so, you know, going from zero to 40%, that's a significant uh, population subset that might benefit. And also with good neurological outcomes means that the communal morbidity and the quality of life years is quite high. Yeah, that sounds quite exciting. Um, So would you be able to tell us a bit more about, uh, I guess, what's planned for our department then with all of this in mind? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll answer a few of the questions and certainly some of the concerns that I had when I was reading this and doing this research. This is a project that's been going on for the last sort of 18 months. And I think thinking about the complexities of running complex systems in a public hospital, always think about cost. And research from uh, Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, uh, from their cardiology department, they've done a cost-benefit analysis into ECMO CPR, um, specifically looking at you know the qualities that you know the quality of life years that are granted after that intervention and quantifying that and therefore deeming whether the intervention is fiscally feasible and the current evidence with the sort of uh, agreed upon cutoffs it, it does demonstrate that ECMO CPR is feasible from a financial perspective when thinking about qualities and so that's very encouraging data and that's just come out of Royal Prince Alfred Hospital reasonably recently. The other sort of complicated uh, nature of this is that there's a, coordinated, a coordination rather needed between the pre-hospital emergency and inter-hospital networks. And you know, that's three very separate arms of a complex public health system. And so you know, we've had encouraging collaborations with our ambulance colleagues, um, as well as our intensive care colleagues and, and anaesthetic colleagues and cardiothoracic colleagues in implementing this system. And so going forward, uh, as of October, and formally as of February, uh, Westmead Hospital is going to be partaking in a wider Sydney area health service study, um, which includes other tertiary institutes such as Liverpool. And it's called the RESET trial, and we're going to be actively employing ECMO CPR as an intervention for specific population subsets within our emergency departments and gathering data on that in a prospective manner. So that's very exciting stuff, and that's going to be happening from the next clinical year. Wow. Um, What do you, is there anything you think might um, change in terms of obviously if we hear that phone come over the speaker that meets criteria, we're going to activate the ECMO team. But outside of that, what other potential things do you see changing either with the way they're managed out of hospital or, yeah? So the protocols are well established. And Mm -hmm. I guess to put things in perspective, I think it might be worthwhile maybe talking a little bit about how things are done now and maybe how things might change after Mm. this process is instituted. So how things are done now, I mean, someone, you know, patient X arrests pre-hospitally. Hopefully they get bystander CPR and it's a witnessed arrest and they're otherwise healthy and between the ages of 18 and 70 with no other significant comorbid medical conditions. So that's our general criteria, yeah. That's the general criteria. Obviously, the bystanders would have called the ambulance service who will then respond. The ambulance service in a pre-hospital setting will evaluate the patient for eligibility for this particular study. If they are deemed eligible, then they will have mechanical CPR applied and have intravenous access and there will be attempted some pre-hospital cooling with cold saline. They will then be expediently transferred to the emergency department and pre-hospitally they will notify the emergency department. And our, our job as emergency physicians will then be to once again go through the selection criteria and activate a code ECMO, um, which will then notify the inpatient teams, namely the anaesthetic and intensivists, as well as the cardiology service, um, to get their processes underway and prepare for the arrival of the patient. Um, so that's the pre-hospital difference. Once the patient arrives in our emergency department, on mechanical CPR. Um, it'll be a coordinated effort between the intensivists and the anaesthetists and the ED staff to facilitate the insertion of the ECMO lines and then to put the patient on cardiopulmonary bypass. 
After that point, uh, once circulation has been established, the next step will be definitive treatment for the cause of the arrest, which will often involve the patient going to cath lab and uh, you know, having a percutaneous coronary intervention. And that will obviously involve our um, cardiology colleagues and then the patient will be transferred to intensive care for ongoing management. Yeah. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah. 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 So that's obviously a very different process to what's currently happening now in our emergency departments. Yeah. And um, I guess in the pre-hospital setting at the moment... Um, my understanding is that the paramedics will often spend a bit of time on the scene trying to get ROSC. Yep. Um, so that might be something that's also different than if they're just going to start them on Lucas and bring them in. Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's actually uh, freely available New South Wales Health Ambulance data um, based on how many arrests they do call in the field and how many they do bring to hospital. And it's oh, a okay. substantial number that they actually do call in the field. And it's interesting, it will be interesting rather, to see how that number will change given that some subset of these patients will then be placed on mechanical CPR and transferred to the emergency department rather than being called on scene. So I guess thinking about the, some of the downflow consequences of that, you know, I think our emergency departments, particularly the tertiary referral centres, are going to see an increased caseload of cardiac arrests um, and definitely in a patient population that we may not necessarily have always seen because those patients might have been, might have been called in the field. And so thinking about it from a systems point of view, we really do need to think about what stresses are going to be on our emergency medical staff, as well as the staffing required and the staff training that's required to make this system feasible 24-7, which will be the long-term goal. Wow, yeah. And I guess that also potentially has the, pos- like the propensity to skew some of the data as well. It might be interesting compared to what we have collected so far yeah. um, and what might be coming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one of the motivations was that we collected a baseline cohort of data pre any intervention. So this is mm-hmm. before mechanical CPR and before eCPR was implemented in our area health service. And the idea being that in five to ten years' time, we can revisit our data at that time and then compare and hopefully demonstrate objective improved outcomes in these patients. That'll be really exciting. Yeah, it should be good. Thanks so much for that, Pramod. It's uh, really interesting and I'm quite excited to see where this all heads in the next couple of months. Um, I'll open up questions now to the rest of the panel, see if there's anything else people wanted to talk about. Thank you so much for that, um, Pramod. Uh, that was really interesting paper. I was just wondering if you could uh, briefly touch on what your results were for the 30-day survival outcomes for the, the cardiac arrests in your population and also whether you had any measurement of neurological outcomes in your data. Yeah, so I think... Just to answer your question briefly, so our summarised overall survival to hospital discharge was 23.4% rather, um, with a total number of cases of 58. Now, going by what we would deem as the average survival in metropolitan Sydney, that is above what we would expect, usually between 10 to 15% um, survival to hospital discharge. I guess one of the weaknesses in our study was that, given the nature of the data collection, we didn't really do um, structured or functional objective neurological assessments on these patients um, at the point of discharge or at the point of 30 days uh, after the event. And so that's something that certainly looking forward into our reset trial and moving on in terms of cardiac arrest database collection, that would be the, that would be the next step. Um, so that is definitely a weakness in our, in our study. Um, however, CHIA and TUCHIA both did objective neurological testing and so if we're talking sort of uh, retrospectively thinking about the studies that have been done and whether or not ECPR is viable from a neurological standpoint, 
there is good evidence now to demonstrate that patients do have survival with great neurological outcomes. Does that answer your question? Yeah, um, so, uh, yeah, no, it does. So then uh, in the formal trial that's coming ahead, there will be a bit more of an assessment of the neurological outcomes. Is that correct, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So I guess um, the way to contrast what's happening with what's happened in terms of what we've collected is this has very much been an in-house operation with mostly run by ED and uh, me and Dr Coggins, who's another one of our ED consultants here in the emergency department, we've sort of been pushing this for the most part. However, going forward, um, a lot of the data collection around the RESET trial is going to involve our intensivist colleagues and our anaesthetic cardiac anaesthetist colleagues. So a lot of the data is going to be around the parameters that they're collecting too, one of which will be um, neurological survival and uh, neurological scoring systems on discharge. Great, thank you. So, Pramod, I was just wondering, how does this study sort of impact the inpatient management of cardiac arrest patients in our hospital? So, it's a good question. Um, Certainly, if you compare to the uh, ECMO CPR trials that were done in Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, Royal North Shore and St Vincent's, um, their population included inpatient cardiac arrests as well. Our population specifically only looked at out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, and so... In terms of the number of patients that would be eligible, it would be difficult for me to comment on it. It's beyond the scope of the data that we collected now. Thinking about it from just an understanding of the etiology of arrests that happen mostly on the wards, the vast majority of inpatient hospital arrests are asystolic um, and therefore have, by their nature, porous, poorer outcomes and poorer survival rates to hospital discharge. One of the exclusion criteria for ECMO CPR is the rhythm, the first rhythm that is analysed upon resuscitation. And aside from a few caveats, uh, VF, refractory VF is really the rhythm that we're targeting. And so in terms of whether it would alter inpatient arrests, I don't think it would alter necessarily because I don't think the numbers would be high enough to significantly contribute to our overall data pool. There are obviously some number of VF and VT arrests. And I think if I remember our local data correctly, most of those arrests happen on either the renal or cardiology ward, secondary to ischemic or electrolyte-based events. And so I think, just to answer your question, I don't think it will necessarily change the nature of arrests that are and the management of arrests in an inpatient setting. Furthermore, the RESET trial that we are implementing in the near future will focus primarily on the out-of-hospital setting so just on that note promote uh will the reset trial include uh in hospital cardiac arrest in the data at all and then also assuming that it's not included um will uh, ecpr be available as an option for in hospital cardiac arrest patients uh next year next year or as this is rolled out so i think that's a great question i think um there's obviously a lot of changes to the system and i think what people need to understand is that ECMO, in an, as an intervention in and of itself, is a viable intervention in certain etiologies of cardiac arrests. And so I guess the three big examples outside of coronary ischemia would be toxicological arrests, environmental, so hyper or hypothermic arrests to facilitate warming or cooling, um, asthma, and pulmonary embolus, I guess, would be the fourth one. And so those etiologies are actually not entirely uncommon, particularly when you're talking about toxicological and hypothermic arrests. We just had a spate of them sort of 12 to 18 months ago with the festivals. And so independent of this study, ECMO remains a viable treatment option for those etiologies. And so should those arrests happen, they would still be 
part of the management protocol. However, this the reset tr- study specifically and the way we're implementing it at Westmead specifically is targeting the emergency department presentations and out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. So essentially you're saying that the, the study population is out-of-hospital cardiac yep. arrest, but for specific for appropriate clinical indications that remains available on the inpatient setting, just not as yep. a research. And we have an amazing ECMO service who are, in my experience, always happy to be contacted um, should the need for ECMO in the context of a cardiac arrest be raised as a potential treatment option. Okay, yeah, cool. Thank you. I'll be joined by Dr. Shreyas Ayer. He will be talking to us about the utility of the aortic dissection risk score and D-dimer for diagnosis of acute aortic syndrome. Thanks so much for joining us, Shreyas. First of all, can you tell our listeners a bit of background about this particular study and why it's important? Yeah, 100%. So I think um, the problem with aortic dissection and, and acute aortic syndromes in the context of emergency medicine is that it sort of has the, you know, the the deadly trinity of you know being an extremely rare diagnosis with high consequences that also has very vague and difficult to to diagnose presenting symptoms, or difficult to to differentiate presenting symptoms, um, and so because of that, it's kind of the worst combination of of, of factors in terms of trying to identify the diagnosis. Um, and that sort of has played out statistically in terms of in, in the past. There's been high rates of misdiagnosis and also poor efficiency um, in terms of diagnosis. So I think there was a study in North America that, that our study quoted, um, which said there's a 2% positive rate of CTAs in, in North America, which is obviously uh, you know, not necessarily the best uh, use of resources, but it probably reflects the fact that there hasn't been an easier way forward until now. And so I think I think this uh, study sort of tries to tries to introduce a way to address those problems, both in terms of I guess stimulating people to consider the population who would be at risk of aortic uh, dissection and other acute aortic syndromes, but also then potentially giving people an out so that they don't feel obligated to do a CTA. And how was this study designed? Uh, so basically the. The clinical question was, uh, what was the sensitivity of the aortic dissection detection risk score plus D-dimer um, in detecting uh, a- acute aortic syndromes in, in comparison to gold standard? So either um, you know, various forms of imaging or follow-up. Um, so for those of you who are not familiar with this, the aortic dissection uh, detection risk score has been uh, formulated... Uh, a few years ago now, um, and unfortunately, uh, initially it was tested on its own, but d- didn't sort of meet adequate sensitivity um, with, you know, individually. 
um, which is what prompted the addition of the D-dimer, obviously being a fibrinogen degradation product, so a marker of um, potential vascular damage. So um, it divides uh, three, it's got three categories. So there's high-risk conditions, high-risk pain features, and then also high-risk exam features. So the high-risk conditions being things like Marfan syndrome, family history, um, known aortic valve disease, or recent aortic manipulation, known thoracic aortic aneurysm, um, pain being uh, chest, back, or abdo pain that's abrupt, non-set, severe intensity, or ripping, tearing quality, and high-risk exam features being pulse deficit or systolic blood pressure differential, a focal neurological deficit in context of pain, a new aortic insufficiency murmur in the context of pain, or a, a shocked patient or a hypotensive patient. Um, and so basically uh, the idea is that a patient that scores zero is low risk. Um, well, there, there's been a couple of ways of stratifying it. So it, it can either be stratified into three groups or in two groups. So zero is low risk, one is intermediate risk, or you know, two or above is high risk. Or there's another differentiator, which is one or less is lower risk, and, and you know two or more is higher risk. Um, and so this particular study was a meta-analysis that incorporated prior studies that were aimed at assessing the, the combination of this uh, risk score plus the D-dimer um, in, in seeing what the sensitivity was for detection of aortic dissection. And so um, I guess it's sort of, in a way, an equivalent to the Wells um, score but for aortic dissection. Um, and so uh, what they did was they, uh, they defined the acute aortic syndromes as aortic dissection, intramural hematoma, penetrating aortic ulcer and aortic rupture. Um, and they included a couple of studies that had prospective or retrospective data based on enrollment of patients with sort of compatible symptoms. Um, they only included uh, studies where the both the risk score was calculated already and where the D-dimer was measured. And then they needed satisfactory definitive confirmation in, like, in terms of gold standard. So usually that was imaging, but otherwise it was sort of a longitudinal follow-up. Um, so yeah, that was, that was basically it. And then based on those things, they sort of pulled together uh, four diagnostic strategies. So uh, score of zero with D-dimer less than 0 0.5. Uh, score of zero with age-adjusted D-dimer, which uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's the uh, based on our... Uh, assay and, and unit, it would be the D-dimer score uh, multiplied, or rather the age of the patient multiplied by 0 0.01. Um, so for a 79-year-old patient, the D-dimer cutoff would be 0 0.79. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, a, a risk score of zero with age-adjusted D-dimer, or a risk score of less than or equal to one with a D-dimer of less than 0.5, and then a risk score of less than or equal to one with an age-adjusted D-dimer. Um, so yeah, that's that was basically um, how they operated. That sounds really interesting. And what were the main findings um, from this yeah. study? So um, they they found four papers. Mm. Um, unfortunately, I mean, four papers isn't isn't a huge sample as it is for for a meta analysis. And out of those four, there was only one pr prospective trial, um, which was a large uh, multi center trial across a couple of large hospitals in a few different countries. Um, the study characteristics in terms of the population were fairly similar. So um, most of the um, 
the hospitals that were identified uh, were large referral hospitals, similar age ranges, so sort of patients in their 60s, give or take, so 10 to 15 years, and uh, similar sort of gender skew of sort of uh, 60 to 66% male, um, which I think probably reflects the fact that uh, acute aortic syndromes do tend to be more prevalent in males rather than females. Uh, so the prospective study was a multi-center uh, study that looked at the failure rate of, of this particular diagnostic strategy um, in people who had the suspected acute aortic um, syndrome. And uh, one of the good things was that they, they were, were enrolling people prior to a decision of imaging. And then there were two retrospective studies. There was one that was done by the same author as the prospective study, um, which looked at uh, people who are identified as having the clinical uh, suspicion, so they were prospectively enrolled, but then the data was retrospectively analysed, um, and and then yeah, were basically worked out based on those patients' um, uh, process through the department. Uh, you know what 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 the risk was, and then there were two other retrospective studies which uh, met the criteria for this, but were a bit more problematic in the sense that they actually enrolled people retrospectively based on presentations to the ED who had chest pain and who uh, had a D-dimer available. Um, and so, uh, you know, they didn't include other potential symptoms that, that presented that could be aortic dissection. Um, and they didn't include any sort of clinician judgment as to whether they were actually considering aortic uh, dissection or other aortic syndromes as a, um, as a diagnosis. Um, and then one of those studies actually included as well admission to hospital as a criteria, so it was a further skewed population. Um, and then the reference standards were uh, predominantly advanced imaging, so CTA, but also like TOE or MRI, depending on the centre, surgery, uh, autopsy, or clinical follow-up um, at discharge. Um, and another, I, I guess, key point is that only one of the studies was as assessing the age-adjusted D-dimer. All, all the rest were just using the normal D-dimer cutoff of 0 0.5. Um, so in terms of the actual studies, um, they found that there was significant heterogeneity in terms of specificity and positive likelihood ratio, but minimal heterogeneity in terms of sensitivity and, and negative likelihood ratio. So based on that, they felt that the pooled results were reasonably reliable from a sensitivity point of view. Um, and the results were quite promising. So uh, the sensitivity of the uh, uh, risk score of zero plus D-dimer less than 0.5 or age-adjusted D-dimer was 99.9%. Um, sensitivity of a score of one or less with D-dimer of 0 0.5 was 98.9%. Um, and the sensitivity of the score of one or less with an age-adjusted D-dimer was 97.6%, which is obviously a little bit uh, not quite as good. Um, one interesting factor in terms of the results was that the pooled prevalence of acute aortic syndromes was enormous in, uh, in the population. So it was 18% um, across the four studies, which you know, it certainly does not reflect my experience of looking for aortic dissection in patients who present to ED with chest pain. How would you apply findings from this study to your practice? Yeah, I mean, I've got a few sort of grains of salt to to take in terms of this in terms of this study. So, I mean, firstly, obviously, any systematic review is only as good as the data that, 
that it encompasses. And so with only one prospective study that was then pulled with three retrospective trials, two of which were of questionable methodology, the pooled data then itself becomes a little bit questionable. Um, it was good, though, that I guess they found a reasonable, uh, reasonably homogenous sample in terms of the sensitivity. Um, I think the inclusion criteria was a major problem. So um, obviously, it, if there was two studies out of the four where they weren't considering the clinical suspicion of acute aortic uh, syndromes in enrollment at all, um, you know, m probably most of these patients were having D-dimers for stratification of PE, which is obviously a much more common diagnosis. Um, and then the other thing is that all of these studies were, were looking at people who had D-dimer available. Um, and as all of us know, we do not do D-dimers for every chest pain patient or really for even the majority of chest pain patients. And so I think that it, just at baseline, this is a skewed data set um, and probably a baseline higher risk population than a lot of the 20-year-olds that we send home who have just presented with a chest pain that may or may not radiate to the back, but otherwise clinically looks very benign from a clinical gestalt point of view. I think it was concerning as well that those two, those two aforementioned studies didn't consider things like back pain or abdominal pain as potential acute aortic syndrome uh, presentations. Um, so again, there'd be a little bit of a bias there. The, again, the, the, the fact that they had a pooled prevalence of 18% of acute aortic syndromes um, sort of reflects what I was discussing earlier, which is that this is not the population that we're broadly dealing with. This is a segment of the population um, and it is promising that it shows good sensitiv sensitivity even within that segment. Um, but I think that we need to consider that when we're looking at how we apply this. And then th there was only one study looking at D-diamond adjustment. So I, and I don't think that that's quite enough yet to, to utilize that. So I guess um, in terms of how you, you asked how I'm going to use these studies, um, I'd say that it's probably usable. Um, certainly in terms of the D-dimer cutoff of 0.5, I think that there's enough data to say that it's a sensitive test in that context using, using the clinical tool with the D-dimer. Um, as I said, I don't think one, one study is enough for age adjustment as, as of yet, but that could use further research. But I think the key is how we use it. Um, and I think that this is probably the biggest take-home for me, um, both in terms of this and in terms of really clinical decision rules as a broader entity. Um, the reason, you know, just reflecting on the reason that we're, we're doing this at all, we're, we're using this decision rule at all and the D-dimer screening at, at all, um, we're either trying to reduce the use of CT scanning in low-risk patients or we're trying to reduce risk of, of misdiagnoses. And so I think, I think now that we know that there's a sensitive protocol, I think that we could potentially achieve it by a considering risk a little bit more you know have, having these risk factors in mind and so that we're a little bit more aware but then also using the d-dimer as an out but that relies on the fact that we're still using our clinical gestalt so we're not just saying the patient has presented with chest pain um so i'm going to use this this algorithm because if we start doing that then i think that there's a big potential for us to spiral down the pathway that pe has gone down in terms of every single patient ending up with a Wells score and, and the, score, the rates of CT scanning in patients who, you know, a generation ago wouldn't have, wouldn't have even had P considered or wouldn't have had a CT scan. Um, but now the, the, the rates of CT scanning are skyrocketing because everyone, everyone is 
using the clinical decision rule without an initial layer of interpretation. Um, I think that, you know, if you, if you look at the, the data that is presented in, in the meta-analysis, there's clearly been a level of clinical interpretation that's happened prior to every single patient that has been enrolled in the trial. In other words, every single patient that has been enrolled in the trial has had someone look at them and say, this patient does not require a D-dimer. Um, and so we need to factor that in and make sure that we're asking every time, you know, we see that chest pain presentation, do I legitimately think that this could be an acute aortic syndrome? Because if the answer is that to that is no, then you shouldn't be using the tool and you shouldn't be using D-dimer. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this goes. Um, I think that in terms of further research, it would be good to see whether this actually increases diagnostic efficiency, so, you know, the, the yield of the CTAs, or whether it, you know, reduces the rate of misdiagnosis. The potential concern being that if, even though we're using this rule, and yeah, it's very sensitive and it's great, if, if we're not improving the rate of misdiagnosis and the diagnostic yield doesn't change or it gets worse, then we're potentially exposing a whole bunch of people to CT scans for no reason with no clinical benefit. Um, and so I think that that's, that's a really important take home in terms of this. And I, I think that it's, the study is suddenly usable, but I think that people need to be very careful about when they use it. Look, I think that's really interesting. Um, my kind of concern around um, uh, kind of aortic syndromes and aortic dissection is and has always been the, the kind of ones that are missed, right? The, the patients that you send home because you don't think about it. And I guess that's why the kind of chest pain plus one, one plus chest pain kind of concept exists for a lot of these, these things. It's a really interesting study and I can foresee it stopping patients from being imaged that might not need to be imaged if they're relatively low risk. We're going to image the sick patients no matter what, um, I, I'm assuming, because you know we're, they're going to go through a scanner before the D-dimer um, is back, presumably, if they look sick enough. I would certainly hope so. <laughs> I, well, hopefully, yeah. Um, I, I, I worry that the, the actual population that should be of concern is the population that would have been sent home prior to this decision rule being made. You know, it's those maybe young people that have undiagnosed hypertension that maybe were straining on the toilet or doing some exercise and now have a little bit of epigastric pain where you go, it's probably nothing, go home, and you don't think about, about dissection. I, I wonder whether there is utility for incorporating some of those really low risk patients into a tool like this i guess i guess the it's it's true and probably it's a data point that that is sort of absent in this study um i guess you'd hope that you know this whole process is is capturing those and and in a in a certain way i guess that's the utility of of those studies which have had the every single person who's had chest pain and had a d-dimer probably incorporates some of the lower lower risk patients and similarly um i think that uh the the initial retrospective trial which is one of the first and and the subsequent prospective trial were a little bit more inclusive in terms of having a broader um symptom base to work with and also you know clinical judgment being the key um I think for me the the key the, the key is though 
is is actually the reminder um, because if you think about it, if if someone's scoring an aortic dissection decision rule uh, risk score of zero, I I really I wouldn't in terms of my normal cl- clinical practice prior to this, I don't really know why I would be pursuing aortic dissection as a diagnosis to begin with. I think that that would be me chasing the zebra um, because, you know, there's no background risk. There's no, there's no clinical characteristic that, that, that suggests the pain and there's no high-risk exam features. Obviously, having said that, we need to account for the clinical gestalt because, you know, if they don't have Marfan syndrome but they do have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or they are, you know, a, a pregnancy, a pregnant patient or something like that, obviously there are other risk factors that don't fall into the decision rule. Um, but I think that ultimately it, it comes down to, like, why, why are you actually using this rule? Um, is it something that you're genuinely considering? And, and you know... Once once you've gone down that pathway, then yeah, it's a really excellent reminder. But I, I think I think that um, you know, firstly, you you need to think is is it a legitimate thing to begin with? Yeah. Mm. And the, the part that concerns me, I suppose, is the fact that this score is there and isn't or hasn't been shown to be a value of its own accord. Only mm. with a D-dimer is it a value, and are we going to be D-dimering all of these patients? Are we really going to want to go down that pathway? Well, well yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe the, now. Yeah. This is the potential issue, and actually, the study, um, from a discussion perspective, did a good job of highlighting this as well. The exact issue that I mentioned of paradoxically increasing CT scanning because suddenly we're D-dimering all these people that we otherwise wouldn't have. Um, but yeah, no, I like it, it, it's a good one, and uh, I think that. Yeah, I, I think that we, we need to be careful how we apply this. I, I, I found it very useful because I'm not always thinking about, you know, actually this patient is six foot seven. Maybe I should wonder if they have an undiagnosed gen- genetic disorder or like, you know, those sorts of risk factors are, are a little bit prominent in my mind now. But, but, um, but this study relies on you making that assessment first and then applying the decision. Correct, rule, which and, is and and so so yeah, I I think that really um, it'll be interesting to see how the utility plays out in real life. Yep. Um, because it's it's very well and good to say, and I, I think that there's a similar to I think there's a similar discussion that's been had about uh, CTCA um, as a in terms of obviously looking for ischemic heart disease in the sense that. I think for a long time that was applied to low-risk patients as opposed to now being applied to intermediate-risk patients. Very useful in terms of the sensitivity for looking at intermediate-risk patients. But in terms of low-risk patients, even a 1% lack of sensitivity um, actually represents a potential burden if you know, you're looking at a population that is actually at extremely low risk and extremely low prevalence. Um, you're going to end up doing a bunch of scans for very little reason and very little yield and having a reasonable number of false positives i really like the paper i'm just i'm uh, my, my i'm always just panicky about the the notion of missing someone that's at risk yeah. rather than you know imaging someone that might be at risk that's not exactly it's the and 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 the, the, this is this is my thing about this is like i'm not really sure that this paper is doing that for us or this protocol is doing that for us i i wonder if rather than helping us catch the you know, the one that we otherwise would have misdiagnosed. I wonder if we're just going to... 
Yeah, exactly. We're just going to start scanning people that we we never would have or should have scanned. Yeah, I, I think my my other reticence with this this paper is, w- what if you get a, a D dimer that's mildly positive with someone that's just met the cutoff for aortic syndrome score, and you don't find a dissection and or any other aortic pathology and the lungs aren't well enough imaged for you to definitively say anything about the lungs, do you then go and do a CTPA on these patients? Yeah, that's true. That's an interesting question. And um, uh, probably it opens up another can of worms in the sense that then these patients are potentially going to need some sort of a combination protocol. Um, yeah, who knows? That, that's, that'll be an interesting... I think, I think this is the thing about uh, always... Always initiatives and protocols are introduced with the best of intentions, but then there's always unintended consequences. And I think, like, I think the whole PE process is such such an example of that. You know, there's so many decision rules now. Um, have they have they increased the amount of you know life threatening PEs that we're finding? They've certainly increased the number of PEs that we're finding, but are mm-hmm. they, are they have they increased the uh, have they provided mortality benefit? I don't I don't know, and you know that'd be interesting to look into. Congratulations, we've excluded all diseases, but here, have a, have a good dose of radiation. Yeah. In a few months' time, we'll do another scan to, <laughs> to check whether yeah. the radiation gave you a With disease. persistent <laughs> chronic musculoskeletal pain. Yeah. That um, is an interesting point, though. Like, I think I struggle with being in a department or any emergency department. There's this four-hour rule where we're expected to get to a specific diagnosis in four hours for a patient really sometimes I don't really think that benefits the patient as much as we think it does where in an ideal world maybe we'd monitor that patient see how they respond to initial treatment think about things a little bit more and then decide whether or not we really need to pursue specific diagnoses Um, like I think a lot of these tools often are there to try and help us get to diagnoses faster without necessarily improving mortality or patient outcome Mm. in that individual patient sense. I know patient flow in a department is very important, um, but particularly to your point with the PEs, like, you know, diagnosing a subsegmental PE in an otherwise stable patient is not necessarily something we have to do in four hours to change their management. But because we can't sit on the patient, think about other things or see how they respond to initial treatment, see if they deteriorate or improve, you know, we're forced into making really snappy decisions on things like imaging. That's a, that's a conversation of its own accord, really, isn't it? <laughs> Patient flow plus, do we, you know, anticoagulate a, a, a stable <laughs> subsegmental PE yeah. in a high or low-risk bleeding patient? You know, It does actually raise another interesting point that was highlighted by the study, which is that um, a lot of the studies that were included in the analysis didn't have data on the duration of onset of symptoms. Mm. Um, I think they... I'm not sure whether it was for all of them or just some of them. They did some degree of post hoc analysis and found that it was only a minority of patients that had the sort of symptoms that were lasting more than 14 days or so. But, you know, it, it raised an interesting point because obviously as patients um, have these symptoms longer and longer, the, there's the research prior research has shown that the D-dimer tends to trend downwards. And so, you know, potentially that could reflect the fact that this protocol may not be as useful for picking up, you know, the subacute and and the chronic dissections that that which, you know, really are probably the ones that we're more likely to miss because the, you know the patient that comes in with tearing pain is hypotensive and looks like they're about to die, those patients are going through a CT scanner, 
you know, that that's that's really not going to change regardless of this rule. I think that probably the ones that tend to get misdiagnosed are the ones that come in with a slightly variable pain or a pain that's been going on for a little while. They have funny symptoms. They they potentially, you know, the, there's a lot of confounders, but they're not actually acutely unwell. And um, again, you know, does this capture those patients? I, I don't know that it does. There's definitely a bias here towards the sick typical presenters right absolutely yeah so just to summarize what will be the three main points that you would like our trainees to take home from this study yeah cool um so i guess use your clinical judgment in the sense of do you think that this is a a legitimate potential diagnosis make sure you're only doing the d-dimer process in low risk patients and in the appropriate uh, setting and in the pl- appropriate clinical situation, this is a potentially usable tool. So last but not least, I'd like to welcome Dr Kit Rowe, one of our emergency registrars at Westmead, who's going to be talking to us today about uh, double defibrillation. Thanks, Carolyn. Um, I looked at a meta-analysis of uh, RCTs um, by Dennis Miraglia et al. uh, from Puerto Rico that looked into double defibrillation for refractory in and out of hospital cardiac arrest. There was a lot of excitement about this uh, a few years ago, um, uh, both on the kind of podcast and FOMED scene, and generally, I think, uh, when the DOSE VF pilot trial uh, was commenced, that seemed to uh, at least show reasons for pursuing uh, the notion of double defibrillation uh, for refractory pulses VTVF patients and seemed to kind of hint at some, some reasonable outcomes, but obviously. Uh, was just a pilot study. This particular paper is the only uh, meta-analysis that I've found that seems to look at any any decent data. The population group were adults uh, over the age of 18 that experienced refractory pulses VT or VF in an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest setting with uh, an intervention group that received double defibrillation. So what, what I mean by that is two defibrillators normally sequentially being administered within a short time course to the patient, often by two different vectors as well because you can't have the pads touching. The comparator group uh, for this study was uh, standard defibrillation, which is obviously with one defibrillator in a classic um, method. Um, and they looked at a number of outcomes. They looked at ROSC, return of spontaneous circulation, uh, survival to hospital admission, survival to discharge, uh, and attempted as well to look at arguably the most important, uh, which is the neurological outcomes uh, of these patients after 30 days. They took uh, a range of uh, studies from 
2000 through to June of 2019. So quite a a wide uh, group and excluded anyone that was pregnant or paediatric cardiac arrests uh, or people that had induced arrests. So people with EPS studies or, or similar groups. So I'm just just for the listeners out there like me who may have never seen this done before, just practically, so if you're going to double defibrillate someone with two different machines, what does that look like in resus? Yeah, so I, I've actually only done this once um, on the advice of a, a colleague and the outcome wasn't that great, but hey, it's an end of one, you can't really make any statistical inference on that. Essentially, you have two defibrillator machines um, with pads placed near each other um, but not touching. Um, you'll destroy the defibrillators that way. Um, <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> good, good hint. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's normally done sequentially, so you have one defibrillator that's activated, and within a very short period of time, I'm talking a second, um, you activate the second defibrillator. Um, so they would both be charged? They would both be charged at the same time. Okay. Yep. And in terms of the, so next to each other with the pads, or would you have AP and, you know... So there's a, there's a number of different ways of setting up the pads. Often mm. people will do an AP pad and uh, a, a normal pad set up. Mm. Um, you can just move the pads further apart laterally. Okay. Um, there's a few theories as to why it works. One is mm. uh, the, the power theory, which is the notion that there's, you're just delivering more energy, there's more joules. And the speculation is that group uh, that it predominantly works on is actually the, the group of kind of obese patients, um, oh, okay. that where maybe yeah. you where maybe you're not delivering the energy that you think you are. So the power theory kind of suggests that the more joules you give, the greater the recruitment you've got. There's uh, another theory that that is multiple vector theory that suggests that if you defibrillate on multiple vectors, you include more myocytes, which has the potential to make sense. I can I can theoretically understand that. And then you've got a, a setting up theory as well, which is the theory that by defibrillating once, uh, you reduce the defibrillation threshold of myocytes and defibrillating a second time is what will actually cease the fibrillation. Okay, so you're talking about population that was included and the criteria to be included in the study. In terms of the findings of these studies, um, what, was the, what were the findings? So the findings were actually reasonably disappointing for me. So the, they, they found that there was no uh, significant effect on uh, rates of return of spontaneous circulation, um, unlike the enthusiasm that has been demonstrated for, for this concept. There was no statistical significance, with the exception of one study, that there was anything on ROSC at all, any improvement on ROSC at all. And that one study that did show some significance favoured the control group, uh, interestingly. However, the quality of the evidence they've described as being very low um, by grade standards. They also demonstrated that there was no statistical significance for survival to hospital admission, no effect on survival to discharge, with, again, a grade of very low evidence. Uh, And unfortunately, none of the included studies met eligibility criteria for any data synthesis for 30-day survival or long-term survival or neurological outcomes. So a little bit of a bummer. In terms of this double defibrillation, when when were they deciding to do that in these studies? Was it when you see the patient in VF, you give them the double shock? Yes, so it's refractory VF, so after the third 
uh, episode of VF or during the third episode of VF, they'd consider a okay, double Okay, so on the third cycle of your yep. CPR, once you've given the amiodarone yep. and the adrenaline. And, okay. and there, were, there were varying study methodologies. Some studies had different um, ambulance districts perform the intervention and then swap to the comparator um, at, a, at a later date. Um, and some just had randomised the two to each group. Do you think that potentially had any impact on the, I guess, the findings in that we're only really looking at whether this is effective in, I guess, patients that have been unresponsive to previous shocks? Like, do you think if we were doing this initially, I guess it's hard to... Well, I suppose, I suppose that's the utility or the perceived yeah. utility of double defibrillation is that you use it for patients that are refractory. Part of, and I'll talk about this again, but part of the the concern for the attention on double defibrillation is that the setup is actually quite time consuming, and you need, you know, different people in there to push the defibrillator button, and it's it's whether or not it's worth it versus the time that it takes and the energy that it takes and the staff and personnel that it takes to actually get two defibrillators there and get the pads on is is, is an interesting thought. So it's more of a rescue measure rather than a you know, are looking yep. at a change in protocol. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Kind of already touched on this, but in terms of the methodology of the papers you've been looking at in the studies, what were the, I guess, the weaknesses or the issues? They determined that there was serious risk of confounding bias in all of the studies. And obviously it's difficult to blind people and to mitigate for that risk any study that's going to be dealing with double defibrillation. They talked about a serious risk of bias in participant selection for three of the four studies and a moderate risk for the other study. The interventions seemed to be well classified and and, and the the uh, and they were well defined and, and very much relatable to each other. The studies were, were able to be interrelated. Um, but they also determined that there was a moderate amount of missing data. Um, from some of these studies, which put them at a moderate risk of bias for that. So there's lots of lots of sources of bias that were, were determined in, in this meta-analysis. Yeah. Um, so I guess given all of that and the result that they, uh, the conclusion they came to, um, what do you think we can take away from this meta-analysis and potentially think about going forward for our practice? Yeah. Look, I, I think it's really interesting the concept of double defibrillation. The bigger study, <laughs> the uh, dose VF study, is due to come out at the end of 2022, and that was the first study that really got people excited. That was the kind of pilot that drove a lot of FOMED providers to really take this on board and, and spread the word about this. I am still excited for that study. I'm not convinced that it necessarily doesn't work. I just think the data that's out there at the moment is insufficient, and I think that with a high-powered, big well-designed study, maybe we have the opportunity to see significance um, where there's been nothing found yet. Well, the interesting thing about this concept is that it's, it is, as you put it, a rescue measure. So it's not something that we're going to be doing to patients that are otherwise well. It's not something that we're going to be doing that, that's necessarily going to require us to have a really high degree of evidence to try it. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of last gasp attempt. I guess the reason that we would maybe want to avoid it is not because it really puts anyone at risk, but because it distracts from the rest of the resuscitation. Um, and that's where the, the, the issue with attempting double defibr defibrillation is going to come in. There's lots of kind of 
stuff out there that we can consider for refractory VTVF. Double defibrillation is just one of those. You've got low-dose esmolol infusions, right, to try and mitigate sympathetic drive. You've got people um, kind of thinking about other antiarrhythmics, lignocaine versus amiodarone, which is a whole conversation in and of its own accord. But my, my feeling is that if, if a patient is that sick and continues to go into VTVF at this stage, it's not unreasonable to try double defibrillation. It's just not likely to work. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. It will be very interesting to see that um, dose VT trial, is that what it's called? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come out in 2022. Um, yeah, and maybe we'll all try this <laughs> sometime. Can I ask, so yep. it's, um, it's for refractory VF VT where you've got a patient that is otherwise requiring CPR and has not responded to initial therapy, right? So this yep. isn't this isn't for the patient that's coming in and out of like VT storm. No, 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 no. no. So this it's is this is for, for the it's for pulseless VT. Yeah. Um, and VF. So so cardiac arrest patients. Yep. And it's when they're continuous, not when they're. It's when the, it's when it's refractory. So they may have yeah. periods of ROSC that are of variable duration. Yeah. But when they're continually, when you've had three episodes of VFVT um, that have required a shock. But then they res- they. What if they're responding to the shock? Into. So I, well, I guess that's the the, the the notion of refractory VTVF is ma- that maybe they will respond, but it might be a, a transient response. Okay, yeah. all right. Because yeah, I had a, I had a, that VT storm come into one of my night shifts, and I think we shocked him twenty times. I'm not even kidding. I turned to Clarice at one point and said, "Is there a limit to the number of times you can shock someone?" Did you have amiodarone running and so um, that he was actually he was given 150 milligrams of IV amiodarone on route. Yep. And had ROSC on arrival as we transferred onto the bed, went back into VT, um, shocked and came out of it. So we never really kind of got properly into the algorithm of VT. So um, but he, like, he wasn't really responsive. We weren't sedating him for those shocks. Um, so it was a little bit confusing, I guess. To know exactly how to treat him, um, but we just kept shocking him. Was he mostly a VT with a pulse then, uh, like after that initial ROSC, or he was still pulseless VT he for was most m- of it? Uh, a mixture, but for a large, at least 50% of it, there was no pulse, and we were shocking him to get him out of it. And so I guess in some respects it felt very refractory, you would say, but he was responding to those shocks and, you know, returning to sinus rhythm. Um and ultimately, we were able to tube him in between those shocks, start him on lignocaine and isoprenolin together, give him a whole lot of IV potassium, which he because his K was two. Why isoprenolin? Um, they w- the <laughs> so according to the interventional cardiologist we called, um, they thought that there was a possibility that it would overdrive the oh, right, overdrive rhythm. Um, so like a so torsade like kind of yeah, so yeah, yep, yeah. issue. Yep. So in that case, I don't know whether he would be someone that would necessarily fall into that kind of refractory VT study and that we were, he was, the shocks we were giving were achieving some outcome of such, uh, albeit short and short-lived. The, but the, the interesting thing about this paper was that it focused on, on out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, so it didn't have a look at any in-hospital cardiac arrest. And I guess this guy would fall into that sphere of out-of-hospital yeah. arrest, given that he did arrest 
outside I mean, of hospital. But he's he's still probably not your ideal patient though. In that the underlying drive for that was probably his hypokalemia. The did rest the was kind of temporising while trying to optimise his electrolytes and take him to cath lab. And and I think for me that's that's really the takeaway message of this study is. Don't get distracted by double defibrillation when we can be doing so many other, other things, things that really make a difference in resuscitation, i.e. correcting electrolytes, um, i.e. making sure we've got good CPR, eCPR if we, if, if we consider <laughs> that, ECMO, right? Yeah. The, these, are, these are interventions that, that definitely make a difference, right? The, the, these are interventions that we know make a difference, that have good... Um, uh, kind of ev evidence, and that's why the ALS algorithm is as it is. You know, d let's not get distracted with things that are cool and now and modern, and let's actually let's do them if if we if we run out of ideas and the patient's still in and out of VT or VF, but but let, uh, but otherwise let's let's focus on the interventions that matter. Out of interest, what was the outcome for that patient? He's all right. Well, <laughs> um, he responded really well to the lignocaine isoprenaline Interesting. Um, yeah. combination, which I was – the cardiologist said to me, look, you know, um, if the underlying drive for the VT is ischemia, then the isoprenaline may make that worse. Mm. Um, but for him, it didn't. It was a gamble, um, I guess, yeah. Yeah, so he, he really stabilised on that <coughs> treatment, um, was taken up to ICU, um, and he had a cath – um, later down the track, which actually showed no real ischemic um, heart disease, so it was more an electrolyte-driven um, pathology. What was the cause of his electrolyte imbalance? They, I actually don't know that now. Mm. I know they were looking for, um, you know, renal issues. Renal issues, um, right. He wasn't. Yeah. He was a pretty well guy in his sixties. Um, just a background of hypertension and high cholesterol, but he wasn't on any diuretic medications. Um, mm or anything that we could really identify as the cause for his low potassium, and he had been well in the days preceding. Right. Um, so a bit of a mystery. And out of interest, how did you guys actually give the potassium in that situation? So we were struggling a little bit to make that decision. Luckily, I was on with someone more senior than myself, but um, we were giving it peripherally through mini bags a bit faster than we otherwise would given the circumstances. Um, but... Um, once we had him tubed, our next priority was getting a central line in, which we were able to do, um, despite the fact that he kept going back into VT. Yeah. Um, we, I think I stopped just after ultrasounding to give, so that they could give him another shock, and then we got the central line in and started giving it much faster. I should clarify with my paper. Um, so it's a, it's a study that is published online currently that is in press, um, uh, that will appear in the Journal of Emergency Medicine uh, later this year. Mm. Beating them to it. Well, <laughs> they've released it online, <laughs> so I'm not beating them too much. We're very up-to-date here in Westmead Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Caroline. You saved life. That's exciting. No, no. Clarice did. <laughs> Shout out to Clarice. <laughs> Clarice, if you're listening to this podcast... <laughs> The dulcet tones of Kit Rowe. Thank you. <laughs> and now, the weather. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. We really hope that you enjoyed that first pilot episode as much as we did. 
As always, we really want to hear from you. So please make sure that you email in any thoughts, comments, feedback, criticism to uh, our email, which is westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Thank you so much.